Okay, assalamu alaikum everyone. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session where we're going to be covering Surah 60 um, Al-Mumtahina. Um, this is our 85th Surah, so um, this is very exciting. I think we only have three more that we haven't covered either way in Project Illumin or in the line-by-line -line traditional version. Um, I, of course, first have to start by calling out the incredible khutbah from yesterday. Um, it's called The Word of Power in a World of Disempowerment. Um, and it um, starts out with a really beautiful um, discussion of the word Allah. And Sheikh was saying he's a real believer in using the dhikr, just the word Allah, without anything else, and explained that it comes from the word wallah. I'm not an Arabic speaker, so I'm just conveying what um, he told us after the fact, um, which means that it's what you crave for. It's something primordial within you. And so the idea that you, um, you know, he suggests in, suggests in the khutbah that even if you just try the experiment of saying Allah over and over again for, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, for an hour, whatever you can handle, um, and that see what that does um, and that you know it, it just calls to you know that primordial place um, but it was a really powerful start of a khutbah that really articulated um, I think a lot of what we feel especially in the world today you know you read the news you look at what's happening with whether it's Muslims around the world climate change um, politics war any of that um, and you know you you can very easily get frustrated and anxious and overwhelmed by your own helplessness in a world where it's really designed by people who other people you know you receive a world it's almost like you're in a matrix and you are in this world of disempowerment and if you if you choose to go it alone you are very quickly overwhelmed by your own amount of helplessness and the alternative is to, you know, reach for Allah, for God, for, you know, the source of all power. Um, and it just, you know, begins, I mean, it's, it's transformative. Um, and, you know, as Sheikh was saying, it's for people who haven't had that experience, um, it's, you know, it's like night and day. You know, either you go it alone and you're on your own or you have the power of God with you. And it comes from building that relationship and it can start with just starting with that that very powerful vicar. So I, it was a really beautiful khutbah. And then also in the second khutbah, he discussed um, what's been happening with Professor Nader Hashemi, our dear friend and who's also on our, our board, um, and how he came under attack because as he was talking about um, the you know assassination attempt on Salman Rushdie, he just named several different possibilities of you know who could have been behind it as you know a, as a way of conveying we really have no idea what the reason was that um, this man chose to go after Salman Rushdie and one of the things that he mentioned was that you know it could have been someone who is um, part of Mossad but part of you know the Israeli intelligence and that that unleashed a firestorm against him and um, the you know it was it's it's a horrible ongoing situation but, you know, among the other things he named were, you know, Islamophobia, he could be a terrorist, he could be, you know, um, part of the, you know, um, Iranian, uh, you know, um, terrorist group. I mean, he mentioned other things. No one seemed to care about any of those other things. But once the name Israel is mentioned, you know, all hell breaks loose. And how, you know, that's just another sign of, um, you know, this world that we live in. And where does someone like Nader Hashemi find power? Alhamdulillah, he can find it in, you know, again, circling back to the idea of Allah and having the power of God with you, especially when you're speaking truth 
um, you know, to power and speak on behalf of justice. So anyway, it was a really, really um, beautiful chutzpah with so much more than, than what I said, so I really encourage people to watch that. Um, I just wanted to share this one article that someone sent to me this week that I thought was very interesting, and I shared it with a couple of people here, and I said it really made me especially appreciate what we're doing here, um, you know, in the Project Illumin Tafsir, going through the Quran. It's an article in the New York Times. It's um, called, in the section called By the Book, the novel that made Karen Armstrong, Karen Armstrong quit her reading group. So it's an interview with Karen Armstrong. And we, we know, I mean, as Muslims, you know, Karen Armstrong is an author um, who has been very sympathetic towards Muslims. People love her. Muslims love her. You know, she's written a book, I think, several books, you know, about the Prophet, about Islam, about um, a number of things. She used to be a nun, so she's, you know, a very religious figure and a religious scholar. Um, and so it was an interview with her um, with a lot of different interesting questions, but the one that really struck out, um, struck me, is the question, um, do you think any canonical books are widely misunderstood? And the way she answered that is, people often tell me that they have read the Quran from cover to cover and found it boring, dogmatic, and repetitive. But the Quran was not originally meant to be read. And like any great poetry, certainly not in translation. The word Quran means recitation. It makes sense only when you listen to it chanted by a skilled reciter. It is indeed repetitive, but in rather the same way as variations in a piece of music, which subtly amplify the original melody, adding layer upon layer of complexity. These recurrent themes and images together with the emotive chant help people to slow down their mental processes and enter a different mode of consciousness. The effect is visceral. Quote, a chill creeps over the skins of those who fear their Lord, and their skins and hearts soften at the remembrance of God. So she cites uh, the chronic verse 39-23. The American scholar Michael Sells describes what happens on a hot, crowded bus in Alexandria when someone plays a cassette of Quranic recitations. Quote, a meditative calm begins to set in. People relax. The jockeying for space ends. The voices of those who are talking grow quieter and less strained. Others are silent, lost in thought. A sense of shared community overtakes the discomfort. And that's from the book Approaching the Quran. And she closes by saying, I don't think this would happen if a London bus driver played a cassette of Bible readings during the rush hour. So, you know, that's obviously, you know, one, one take and one, you know, real effect of the Quran. But, you know, this is a scholar of religion and who's written, you know, as... Um, someone that, as I said, Muslims really revere for what she has said about Islam, but this is not how, from everything we've learned here, I would ever describe the Quran at the start, you know, to say, like, has a canonical book been widely misunderstood? I mean, we, we have this incredible gift of having learned that the Quran is um, not boring, dogmatic, and repetitive, obviously, um, but that it is meant to be read and understood. It's not just great poetry. There's, you know, there are messages, there are there's a very deep meaning. I mean, I, I, people who've been following this, I don't need to tell you how special and wonderful this is. But at some levels, it just makes me really sad that, you know, someone who is so learned in religion doesn't even really know what the, the potential is that we've uncovered in this, you know, in these halakas with the Quran. And she spent her entire lifetime studying religion. So, you know, we are just, it just underscores for me again, I mean, how blessed we are, how much we've learned, how much, like, 
everything that we've covered in the Quran has been life transforming for us and our challenge is just to convey it to others that there's something here that is worth studying. There's something that can change your life. There's something here that can really reconnect you to God and God's message and God's purpose. Is there's, you know, this, is, this is the elevated path to the divine um, and it's clear, but it, you know, it wouldn't have been accessible to us without obviously the work of Sheikh. Um, but again, you know, we now we know so much more and look how far we've come from um, what one religious scholar, a highly esteemed scholar, has to say about our book. So alhamdulillah, um, you know, obviously with this great gift comes great accountability and responsibility. And may Allah help us to internalize lessons for ourselves, but also to help others find their way to this really transformative education. So anyway, I just wanted to share that because someone sent it to me and I, I you know, I, I had a reaction to it and, um, you know, alhamdulillah, all I can say is alhamdulillah. So um, for what that's worth, um, anyway, I'm so excited to um, engage with another surah, um, alhamdulillah, and uh, thank you for joining us. May Allah help us um, learn and internalize what we need to do. Thank you, Sheikh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad al-Mustafa Muhammad al-Musa al-Rahmatan lil-Alameen Khatam al-Rusli wal-Anbiya'i ajma'in wa ala alihi al-Athari al-Mayameen wa ala ashabihi al-Mukhtarin wa ala man ittaba'u bi-ihsani ila yawm al-Din اللهم يا علي عظيم اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين وإن شاء الله today we talk about سورة الممتحنة 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 short سورة uh, a later revelation. So at the outstart, um, like the reports we've talked about before about the chronology of the Soar, um you read uh, a number of interesting reports that in Mutahina is was revealed after an Ahzab. And some even say that it was revealed after Al-Ahzab and before Al-Nisa. And um, that, that's just impossible. That chronology is uh, quite impossible. It most certainly was revealed after Al-Ahzab, but not right after Al-Ahzab. Um, and it most certainly was not revealed uh, before Al-Nisa. Um, and indeed, Surah Al-Mutahina, um, in all likelihood, was revealed after Surah uh, Al-Hajj and Surah Al-Fatih. And um, as late as the seventh Hijri year, uh, and even perhaps even perhaps the beginning of the eighth Hijri year. Um, it, 
Now, in Montahina is is another one of these Medina surah that revolves around a historical set of events. Uh, something that happens that the surah responds to. And so we can understand the context of the surah because of that historical event or the historical events that are that unfold. Um, so as we've talked about that in when we um, discussed al-Hajj and al-Fatih, um, after the attempt to go on pilgrimage and Quraysh turning away Muslims that year, and Muslims then entering the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the treaty where, where uh, they decide on uh, peace terms for 10 years, the Quraysh ended up violating the treaty um, three, three years or so into the treaty, so we didn't get to, to the entire 10 years. But as, as you recall, part of the terms of, of the treaty, terms which at the time the majority of Muslims did not understand why the Prophet would agree to these terms, um, which in included a certain lack of reciprocity, and that is if people from Mecca convert and try to join um, Medina, that Muslims are obligated not to accept them and must turn them away. Um, while if people left um, Medina, apostated, and went back and wanted to go back to Mecca, they would be allowed to do so. There are no barriers to that. And as you, I'm sure you remember that because it's the, of this unequal term, uh, at the time, if not a substantial, it could it probably was a majority of um, the companions were quite offended about these terms. Now, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah itself did not say anything about what would happen if the converts were women, one way or the other. Um, was it intended to cover women? Although you'll find in Islamic sources a substantial disagreement about this. Some said no, that it was not intended that by the terms the, of the treaty, it only really, uh, the, the, the uh, negotiators were only really thinking of men. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So you, you, within Islamic sources, you'll find a substantial disagreement as to whether the treaty was actually intended to cover women or not. The, as we will see, the difficulty, however, arose that when Muslims were confronted with women who converted to Islam and left um, left Mecca and attempted to join Muslims in Medina, it was for many different reasons, it was emotionally extremely difficult to accept the idea that these women should be returned to Mecca, where it was most certain that if they continued to adhere to their beliefs, they would be persecuted and harmed and even possibly killed. Meccan society, I mean, remember from a while ago, Omar's testimony that Meccan society, men controlled women, and in Medinian society, according to this uh, report, that it was women who controlled men. Meccan society was a patriarchal society par excellence. It, it, It was a society in which for a woman to play a prominent public role or to be allowed um, her own terms, um, she would have needed to be from a fairly powerful, fairly aristocratic family. I mean, it was, it, so it was, when we see it, it was always with women that come from uh, very prominent families, like Hind, for instance, um, Abu Sufyan's wife. But other than these few exceptions, um, the, I, the, the act of a woman dissenting from the will of her family, the will of her husband, the will of her parents, uh, would have had grave consequences for these women so there's this issue that Muslims found it very, even dishonorable to turn away these women and to say, you know, you go back to Mecca. And as we will see, though, know, there is, like all like always in history, the history is infinitely more complex than what narrations tell us. Um, and we have to we have to exert an, an added effort to try to get to the nuances and layers of history, um, because life itself is is complex, and we'll we'll talk about the, the full setting in inshallah. Okay. So the context is, and the title of the, the, the very title given to the surah, Al-Mumtahina, 
which literally translates into the tested woman, refers to the process of vetting through which Muslims would then decide who would be allowed to remain in Medina and who would be turned back. Okay. But there is a side to this that is rather very interesting. Medina, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and I am fairly sure, 90% sure, that in Muntahina was revealed after the Battle of Khaybar. And it is, Medina starts becoming a place of um, considerable fame and reputation in Arabia. It is no longer the doldrums. It is no longer the place that had been plagued by a civil war that is very likely that Mecca is going to quash and destroy during these seven years, Medina has proved itself. Medina has set its mark on all of Arabia. And we know this how? We know this because we see after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the number of conversions exceeds anything, more, more people convert right after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, in the year after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, than in the, in the entire seven years of the, after the Hijra. And not only that, but neutral tribes are sending, as we will um, see in, in reference to a particular ayah, Neutral tribes are sending to the Prophet and taking the initiative to say, don't count us as allies of Mecca. They don't want to be thought of as um, part of the Mecca folk. Um, we'll, we'll come to it. In a, yeah. Instead of jumping ahead. Okay, yeah, we'll come to it. Anyway, so, so you have, and Mecca itself, a, a, people are converting especially the, the younger folks, um, have lost faith in the leadership of Mecca. And they, they no longer they see the inherited beliefs of Mecca 
as inevitable or rational or logical. There is clearly plenty of evidence that the Quran is breaking through. People are hearing what the Quran has to say. People are communicating, reciting to each other verses of the Quran, and it is making sense, and it is attracting people. And the the um, the luster of the institution of idol worship is on the wane. So we see in the first two years in a considerable number of people, a large number of people that are from Mecca who are in fact converting and they go to Medina and they turn away and they don't want to go back to Mecca and be persecuted. Well, actually, they they fall into two groups. There are some of them who go back to Mecca and keep their Islam a secret. And we we know about their Islam only after the Fatah, only after the conquering of Mecca. So there are you know, these reports of individuals who, after Mecca is conquered, um, we have a riwayah, oh yeah, this person came to Medina and was turned away, but, you know, so they, they've been a Muslim for a while. So that's one group. The other group, are the group that actually becomes even more of a pain in Mecca's side, those who don't want to keep Islam a secret and don't want to go back to Mecca where they're going to be persecuted. So what did they do? They created their own communities. So they they would all meet each other, the people who'd been turned away, and they're they're men for the most part because after Surah Al-Muntahina, the women were allowed to join Mecca. And a lot of the men would say to their wives, Okay, you go ahead, you settle in the safety of Mecca. I'm going to go with the community of exiles who are male. And they made Mecca's life extremely difficult because because Mecca denied them the right to believe in what they believe, the, 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 the freedom to believe in what they want to believe in, um, they would made it a business to interrupt Mecca's trade, to raid their caravans, to, um, uh, in in a variety of ways, just make it, you know, even some of them would start um, stopping people who are traveling to Mecca and sort of like tell them, what is your business in Mecca? You know, I'm my business is X, Y, Z. Uh, well, you know, if you if you're an ally of Abu Sufyan, you any ally of Abu Sufyan is our enemy. Um, so you know, be on notice. Things like that. So all of this is none none of this is particularly new. This is all well documented and has been um, written about. And even Orientalists, at least. You know, those who are more fair-minded of them could not deny um, 
what I've just described. But there is an element to this dynamic that unfortunately has not been written about. And that is Mecca becomes attractive not just for those who are sincere converts, but it becomes attractive to many people who are not converts at all. And I think there are two main reasons for this. First reason is that the word gets around that uh, did I say Mecca? I meant Medina, not Mecca. Uh, Medina. Medina becomes attractive. Um, the first is that the word gets around that if you are destitute, if you are without means, Medina is where people take care of the poor. These are the people who now Medina has become wealthier after its military successes and has more alliances. So for the first time now, I mean, in, since the fifth Hijri year, Medina's trade, now there's a substantial trade you can speak of. The caravans are not just going to Mecca. Caravans actually head to Medina. And as there are more, as there is more money, there are also more generous donors. But there is another element that is very interesting, and I'll show you how it pops up um, if, you're, if you're reading the sources carefully. Medina starts looking for a lot of women who are having problems with who who uh, are having problems with their in their marriages with their families medina looks like an attractive now we, we the sources don't preserve for us the details but i'll show you what the sources do tell us that the idea that women are more empowered in Medina, not in, a, not in an ideological sense, but in the most clear, mundane, sociological sense, there is a certain, um, a certain social reputation about the the mobility of human beings, about the dignity of human beings, about the welfare of human beings that is going on in Medina. So what that means is not everyone that is showing up and wanting to be a part of Medina is actually a convert. So what some of the most interesting, or part of the most interesting facts about Surah Al-Mumtahna 
is the sources don't start out by saying that the that the occasion for revelation or the reason for the revelation of the surah was because of women who um women who converted to islam actually the sources say that the first cause of revelation for surah al-muntahina the first cause was a woman who um who was not a convert to islam um Her, I don't, I can't, I'm blanking out on her name, but, no, uh, no, uh, um, the, the woman, uh, Sara, Sara, uh, her name is Sara, so this woman goes to Medina and there are, as always, different versions of exactly the conversation that takes place, but all the, the versions agree on the gist of it, is that she is asked, are you, did you come because you're a Muslim? She says no. Did, did you come because you're a Mahajira? She says no. So why did you come? And she basically says, I came because I am destitute. I am very poor. And I came because I want financial help. And the Prophet ﷺ tells people to help her. So she's not a convert. She's a, among the kuffar, but she comes to Medina for financial assistance. And why do we know about this? Why so many reports preserve the memory of this woman? Um, The reason the memory of this woman is preserved is because of the role she, the, the unwitting, because of a, a particular event that takes place. That I, I we'll talk about. I actually, I'm, I'm not sure her name was Sara now. I, I, no, it, it is Sara. It is Sara. Yeah, it is Sara. I can't remember her last name, but it is Sarah. Okay. Um, so they give her clothes, they give her food, they give her money. And among the people who helps her, who gives her um, aid, is um, a man who had, a man from Mecca who had, come to Medina after the Hijrah, and he did a Hijrah, in other words, he did a Hijrah. And his name is Hatib, Hatib ibn Balta. Um, and this man had fought in Badr, in the Battle of Badr, and he, he gives help to this woman, but he also writes a note 
that he gives to her and says, give this note to the elders of Mecca. And in the note, it warns Mecca that the prophet is preparing to invade them. This incident then tells us that Surat al-Mumtahina must have been revealed after Mecca had breached the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which then means that it was three years after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So it's shortly before the Battle of Mecca. Or there wasn't even a, really a battle, but before the conquering of Mecca. Okay, now Khatib, although he's a muhajir, and although he fought in the Battle of Badr, and although he is a, a, a one of the close companions, he was also in the Battle of Ahzab, uh, he was not among the people who withdrew or ran away. And he was also in the pilgrimage uh, who, among the people who went to the, on the, on the pilgrimage without arms. In other words, the, the, the solid 1,500 people that followed the Prophet. And also among the people who gave the bay'ah at, at Aqaba, to, uh, the pledge to fight to the death and so on. So he is... A man was a was a solid history. The issue with Hatab though is that when he converted and went on Hijra, his wife and children refused to convert. And re they remained back in Mecca all this time. Hatab himself was not a genuine Meccan. He did not belong to one of the tribes of Quraysh. He was a mawla, meaning he is, an, well, according to some reports, that he's, he's not an authentic Arab. He's um, uh, an Arabized Arab. But whether that's true or not, anyway. But what's clearly known is that he's not from a prominent tribe in his place in Meccan society before Islam was that he was in a protected status, sort of under the guardianship of an authentic Meccan family. And Khatib is worried about once hostilities or once Mecca realizes that um, that you know he doesn't know at this point whether Mecca is going to put up a fight, whether there's going to be a siege of Mecca, whether you know I think he couldn't have imagined that what in fact did happen would have happened. What did happen is that Mecca folded very easily. Once they saw the, the Islamic armies or the, the armies from Medina, it, it, it turned out, as I said before, and I'm, I'm completely convinced of this, that Mecca had become substantially Muslim. So that, because they, otherwise, the fact that the elders didn't even 
you know, put up any resistance. Didn't, Muslims didn't need to lay siege to Mecca. Uh, there were only very minor skirmishes that took place. That, that is impossible. If you know anything about Meccan history and the history of Quraysh and the 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 the, the Moors of Quraysh, for that to happen, Quraysh must have realized there is no point to fighting anymore. They're just simply they had already lost the battle before it started. So, but Hatib, of course, didn't know that, and there was no way for him to know that. And what Hatib was worried about is that Mecca would retaliate. Mecca's not going to retaliate against prominent families or the wives and children of converts from prominent families, but people like him who are Mawadi, Mecca could indeed then either imprison or or simply execute his family sort of as a way of uh, retaliating against um, these Muslims. So he sends this, this note warning Mecca. And the woman, who's not a Muslim, takes the note and she is on her way back to Mecca when the prophet receives a warning from the angel, from Gibril, that there's a woman carrying this note, so he sends Imam Ali and Zubair and Al-Maqdad, and he tells them, go in, uh, um, in uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, stop this woman and retrieve the note from her. And they indeed go and they tell her, you know, they, they stop her and they, she, she denies she's carrying a note and they say, you know, if you don't produce a note, we will search you. So she was hiding the note in the locks of her hair and, and she gives them the note. So the Prophet goes back to Khatib and says, you know, why did you do this? And he says what I just told you is that I am a mawla. I am. I am not. A, I'm not a, a. You know. I'm from the fringes of Qureshi society, and my my wife and my children are back there. And I feared the retaliation against my family uh, when Mecca realizes that uh, that Muslim armies are heading to them. And the Prophet says, forgives him and doesn't punish him um, and just tells him to repent. And interestingly, the reports tell us that this, this was the initial reason for the revelation of Surat al-Muntahana. And that is why uh, the very first verse of Surat al-Muntahana يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَتَّخِذُوا عَدُوِّي وَعَدُوَّكُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ تُلْقُونَ إِلَيْهِمْ بِالْمَوَادَّةِ وَقَدْ قَفَرُوا بِمَا جَاءَكُمْ مِنَ الْحَقِّ يُخْرِجُونَ الرَّسُولُ وَإِيَّاكُمْ أَنْ تُؤْمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ رَبِّكُمْ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ خَرَجْتُمْ جِهَادًا فِي سَبِيلِي وَابْتِغَاءَ مَرْضَاتِي تُسِرُّونَ إِلَيْهِمْ بِالْمَوَادَّةِ وَأَنَا أَعْلَمُ بِمَا أَخْفَيْتُمْ وَمَا أَعْلَنْتُمْ وَمَنْ يَفْعَلْهُ مِنْكُمْ فَقَدْ ضَلَّ سَوَاءَ السَّبِيلِ So the very first verse 
which talks about, well, let's read the translation of this. Believers, do not take my enemies, who are your enemies as well, as friends, showing them affection, even though they are bent on denying whatever truth has come unto you. And even though they have driven the apostle and, yourself and yourselves away, only because you believe in God, your sustainer. If it be true that you have gone forth from your home to strive in my cause, and out of a longing for my, good, for my goodly acceptance, do not take them for your friends, inclining towards them in secret affection. For I am fully aware of all that you may conceal, as well as of all that you do openly. And any of you who does this has already strayed from the right path. And so the sources tell us that the occasion for the opening revelation in Surah Muntahina is this incident was Hatib. Um, and in this, in this sense, when Surah Al-Mumtahna talks about tulquna ilayhim bil mawadda, it is not talking about being a friend, but it, although there is a verse later on that that comes closer to to the issue of friendship, but but it is if if these reports are accurate, then it is referring to divided loyalties, acting upon a divided sense of loyalty, as Hatib did. And, but why does Allah choose the word mawadda if what Allah is talking about is an act of treason? What Hatib did is what we today would call treason. And the, although the Prophet ﷺ forgave him and didn't punish him, nevertheless, in military affairs, if you betray a secret like that, it, it seems incongruous to use the word mawadda, which means, which is much broader than treason. So why does God use that expression? And in my view, because the rest of the surah, I think, makes that clear, is that if you look at the heart of what Hatib did, Hatib tells the Prophet that which is actually really interesting because I had sort of like forgot about this for a second. He tells him that one, I didn't, I did not mean, I did not apostate. I am not loyal to them. But tells him that, and also tells him, 
I did, I did not believe, and I do not believe, that my warning them would have helped them militarily. The only thing is that I hoped by warning them, they will then, I will carry favor with them so they won't hurt my family. So he explicitly tells the Prophet ﷺ this. And he's, he's probably right. I mean, it, it seemed like people knew that the balance of powers have tipped. Maybe people didn't expect Mecca to fold as easily as they did. But it... The way that Muslims organized and marched in to Mecca, it, it was clear that they already knew that the balance of power has drastically changed in the past three years since the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So, what is it that Hatib, What is the the heart of Hatib's um, fault? The heart of Hatib's fault is he put his personal affairs, his personal gain, ahead of the collective well-being. And I'll show you this in the in as as we go about that. These are people who are hostile. They, even if they might give you reprieve, Allah specifies that these are people who, A, they've They've um, uh, uh, threw you out of your homeland. They've banished you, or caused you to to um, leave your homeland because of your beliefs. But then, Allah further specifies: in, in truth, these are also people that, as a judge, if they could overcome you, if they had the, the opportunity to in fact overcome you, they would not treat you with kindness or friendliness they would treat you as enemies. And they would make it a point, if you remain Muslims, to harm you, both physically with their hands and with their tongues. And the heart of the matter is, is that they have a problem with your religion. What do law takfurun? That what they, they, they're, not only would they harm you with their hands and tongues with evil intent, as the, the translation says, 
But they desire that you should deny, you should abandon your faith. This is, they are not at peace with the fact that you believe what you believe. Okay. And this is why Allah then follows this by saying, لَن تَنْفَعَكُمْ أَوْلَادُكُمْ Right? يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ يَفْصِلْ بَيْنَكُمْ وَاللَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ بَصِيرٌ If you are giving priority to your family or to your money, in other words, to your personal affairs, well, it will avail you nothing in the hereafter. Because Allah knows that you've put personal interest ahead of the, the common good in dealing with a people who are not just has transgressed against you, so not just is there a historical transgression, but a continuing state, a continuing state of enmity on part of these people that we're talking about. They hate the fact that you're Muslims. And if they had the opportunity, the opportunity, they would malign you, slander you, attack your faith. Okay. So this setting is quite important as we will see that Medina after the Treaty of Qudaybiyah Oh, uh, by, by the way, this woman, um, which is actually, I, I should have uh, mentioned that, but anyway. Um, this woman, Sarah, the, the woman that carried the message, um, her job in Mecca was a singer. Um, she um, So, I mean, for, for all... For all these Muslims who, who who don't understand the humanity of Islam, I mean, th th this is a woman who, and and a singer in Mecca at the time, it's like someone who's a singer in Las Vegas. It's not very likely she's an Um Kalsum type singer. No, I mean, a singer mean you know, um, you know, racy type, you know, people drinking and. Uh, not not very not very Islamic type situation, anyway. But ne nevertheless, they remember that she was that the Prophet ﷺ said, "Help her." Now, the fact that a woman like Sarah and Sarah had a relative who fought against Muslims in Bad in Badr and was killed by Muslims, so she, her relative fought against Muslims. 
she was not a Muslim, and when she was asked by the Prophet, she said, no, I'm not converting. And she had a profession um, that's, you know, racy. Um, I don't know if she was still in her profession when she went or she had retired, because we don't know her age when she when this events took place. But anyway, but the fact that if Sarah, who had a relative that fought against Muslims in Badr, made that trek and insisted that she's not Muslim and still knew that she would be assisted, the likelihood if she thought that they're not going to help me if I told them I'm not Muslim, she would have told them I'm a Muslim. That tells me that this was a thing. Sarah is not an isolated incident. That it must have been, and, and the, the collaboration, corroborating evidence we'll, we'll, we'll see, is that people started going to Medina not just because they wanted to convert but because for personal gain because Medina was known as people where people are charitable and they're going to help so if you don't have money that you, you, that's where you go and second even for women who were experiencing family problems or husbands that they hated they thought of Medina as a refuge that this is where the, you can go and you can change your personal circumstance gives you a very different understanding of what the the place and it also allows you to understand why Islam why becoming a Muslim in the Near East for the next few hundred years was a very fashionable thing because it is it was what it was the you know by it it was what people saw as the attractive thing the good thing you, you don't spread a message by getting it associated in people's mind with hardship and oppression. You spread a message when people associate that message in their mind with what fulfills them, with what protects them, with what further sanctifies them as human beings. It's a lesson that, you know, I wish modern Muslims would, would learn. Okay, anyway. So, are you okay? Okay, so now 
notice what comes right after that. قَدْ كَانَتْ لَكُمْ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ فِي إِبْرَاهِيمِ وَالَّذِينَ مَعْهُ إِذْ قَالُوا لِقَوْمِهِمْ إِنَّا بَرَاءٌ مِنْكُمْ وَمِمَّا تَعْبُدُونَ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ كفرنا بكم وبدا بيننا وبينكم العداوة والبغضاء أبدا حتى تؤمنوا بالله وحده إلا قول إبراهيم لأبيه لأستغفرن لك وما أملك لك من الله من شيء ربنا عليك توكلنا وإليك أنبنا وإليك المصير So you have, Allah says you have a good example in Ibrahim and those who are with him when they said to their people, Verily we are quit of you and all of you worship instead of God. We deny of the truth of whatever you believe, and between us and you there is, has arisen enmity and hatred to last until such time as you come to believe in the one God. The only exception was Ibrahim saying to his father, I shall indeed pray for God's forgiveness for you, Although I have it not in my power to obtain anything from God in on your behalf. In other words, you know, it's up to God, whether God to forgive you or not. And and Ibrahim and his followers prayed. Um, oh, this is uh, this is ayah five. Well, okay. Um, okay. So then, the example that Allah says, Ibrahim. And those with him, why the example of Ibrahim? Especially when we read among the traditions, is that when Ibrahim travels with his wife Sarah to Damascus. Um, this is, yeah. When he travels with his with his wife Sarah to Damascus, he tells her, there, there, no one who, on the face of this earth, who worships God other than me and you." And even after they settle in Damascus, the the community, Ibrahim's community. It's takes a long time before it's a substantial community. Remember, what did Ibrahim's community do to Ibrahim? The hostility and enmity got to the point where they plotted to throw Ibrahim in a fire. This point will become would become clearer in a second, but the issue is not just that you have a belief different my mind than mine. The issue is that you have a belief, but you have ill will towards me. You do not accept 
my belief as having a right to exist and if you had the the opportunity to do so you would do everything to eradicate this belief this point will become even clearer as we go on but why again why Ibrahim in particular This point detained me for a while because in the Tafsir they don't really explain to you why Ibrahim. I mean, you could have said Musa who fought battles um, or any of the prophets that actually had substantial amount of followers and more akin to the example of the Prophet Muhammad but you see I think this is precisely the point it is Hatib fell in the trap of the logic of exceptionalism Hatib thought I am different because he actually tells the prophet that. He tells them, I thought that everyone else, they ha- they come from good families. And so if they have relatives in Mecca, they, they're not worried about their relatives being hurt. But I am different. I come from a marginal family. And so I thought that my family is at risk. That logic of exceptionalism, where you say, well, my circumstances is different. So, I can create a special set of rules for myself. is very dangerous. But there is another thing about the Prophet Ibrahim it is very easy it's one thing when people understand the idea that you cannot befriend those who are hostile to Islam and Muslims those who don't like Islam and Muslims it's one thing when people understand that when there is a community of Muslims around you to support you. But Allah was telling us about Ibrahim because as that story when he tells to Sarah, other than you and I, there's no one else that worships God on the face of this earth. But that's exactly the point. That you still must have the strength to even if you are standing alone to be cognizant of the fact that you cannot befriend you cannot ignore the fact that those if that you are dealing with people who have every ill intent against your religion and your faith. 
So even when you feel like, well, I am alone, and what difference is going to make? No, it's a principle. This, subhanAllah, we live in an age where so many Muslims have somehow justified to themselves to befriend Islamophobes. Recently, there was a statement by a group of people against ISNA because ISNA has an alliance with a well-known Islamophobic organization and they actually formed sort of a union and formed an alliance uh, with... Um, uh, does anyone remember the name of the... Of, um, I can't see your lips. I mean. KJC. KJC. What is it for? American Jewish Committee. Oh, the American Jewish Committee. Um, but also look at what the Emirat is doing with so many Islamophobic organizations. Look at what Saudi is doing. That, that logic, if you are dealing with a people who are do not respect your religion, do not honor your religion, then yes, the relationship cannot be a friendly relationship. And it doesn't matter. So I am sure that at a, at a certain level, the Emirat says, well, you know, Israel is so powerful that What's the point of trying to stand up against these Islamophobic Zionist organizations? Um, you, you can't beat them, just befriend them. But that's precisely the type of opportunistic logic that Allah cites the example of the Prophet Ibrahim salam to combat. It doesn't matter. It's the principle that matters. Okay, then, so, Allah says, this is the example. Now, if you know that it's, there's a difference between someone having, a, because a lot of Muslims get very confused about this. They come and say, well, you know, my father was not a Muslim. Can I pray for, for Allah to forgive my father? And then they'll always find Muslims who don't know any better. It tells them, no, it's haram. And they'll cite to them the, the example of Ibrahim and his father. It's completely different. Ibrahim's father was completely hostile to Ibrahim's belief. It's not that he said, I don't believe, but I respect your right to believe what you want. Ibrahim's father was part of the party. He agreed to trying to kill Ibrahim, burning him alive. So you cannot pray for those who are hostile, for Allah to forgive those who are hostile, who have enmity towards Islam and Muslims. But you can pray 
for a, a, a family member or a loved one who just died not a Muslim. And ultimately, it's up to God to forgive or not. This is, it's, you, ultimately, you know, it's, it's entirely in God's jurisdiction. But there's a world of difference between doing dua for someone who just died not a Muslim and doing dua for someone who was hostile, an enemy of Islam and Muslims. The second, you can't do. Okay. Now, no. Rabbana la taj'anna fitnatan lilladhina kafaru. Waghfir lana, Rabbana, innaka anta al-aziz al-hakim. لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِيهِمْ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ لِمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ اللَّهُ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَمَنْ يَتَوَلَّ فَإِنَّ اللَّهُ هُوَ الْغَنِيُّ الْحَمِيدُ So this is five and six. Make us not, it, 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 let's, I don't like the translation plaything. Muhammad Asad says, make us not a plaything for those who are bent on denying the truth and forgive us our sins for our sustainer for though alone art almighty truly wise. In them indeed, you have a good example for everyone who looks forward with hope and awe to God in the last day. If any turns away, let him know that God is truly sufficient, self-sufficient, the one to whom all praise is due. Okay. So, رَبَّنَا لَا تَجْعَنَّا فِتْنَةً لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا This is a, it's not a, um, it, it, we have to pause at this, this expression. So right after you are told about those who are hostile to you as Muslims and the fact that you cannot minimize hostility to your faith in deciding upon your personal relations, Maybe to bring this closer to your mind, look at what follows. So then you have this prayer, right? Prayer that the believers are supposed to utter. Rabbana la taj'anna fitna. Allah, don't make us a fitna. Don't make us a fitna for those who don't believe. Okay? Now look. What follows this? Asa Allah an yaj'ala baynakum wa bayna alladheena adaytum minhum wadda wallahu qadirun wallahu ghafoorun rahim So what follows this is that and it may well be that God will bring about mutual affection between you and your enemies for God is more all-powerful and most forgiving. So, what is the connection between this prayer? Allah don't make us a fitna for those who don't believe. And then Allah saying to us, it might be, don't forget that it might be that the enemies of today become the friends of tomorrow. What are the ways that you can become a fitna for those who don't believe. Now, 
a lot of commentaries say, well, the way you become a fitna for those who don't believe is that if the unbelievers or those who are enemies to Islam subjugate you, they might that might become a fitna to them because they will think that well if they were if their religion was true we would have never defeated them so what the commentaries say is that that prayer means is that allah don't allow the unbelievers to become victorious over us because when they become victorious over us they're going to think, well, it must be because we've become victorious over the Muslims that it must be that the religion is not true. And that's what this prayer means. And that's possible, but not the only meaning. You can become a fitna for the unbelievers Yes, by being weak, by having no dignity, by having no principles, by the unbelievers coming to you and finding if they're insulting your religion and they find you, you know, laughing along or without, without a spine, without identity, without dignity. Yes, you, you, you very well could become a fitna to them. Because I, I am sure in the same way that the Emiratis today are a fitna to the Israelis. Because they come and they, 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 you know, they violate the rights of Muslims, they steal Muslim lands, they help Islamophobes, and they find the Emiratis and Saudis giving them money and praising them and you know, laughing along, and they say, what type of religion is that? That's a joke. So yeah, that, that is a fitna. But also, remember that the context of Surah Al-Muntahina, it is Muslims now who are having the upper hand over the Qurayshis. The other way you become a fitna is that in victory you become unjust. And you're, you're in the same way that it is not right to do what Khatib did, but it could have been, but for the presence of the Prophet ﷺ in their midst, it could be that Muslims would start becoming powerful and say, why should we help the destitute who are not Muslims? Why should we help a, a singer who comes and who even has a brother who fought against us and, and was killed in the war against us? Get out of here. Why should we help you? That is a fitna. Because what the message that gets across is Muslims are cruel and not humanitarian. Everything, everything that makes a person believe that Muslims are not just could be a fitna. And Allah then reminds us, remember, in the same way Allah has said, that, you know, repel bad 
evil with good so that whoever is your enemy today might become your close ally tomorrow. The same idea is here that your measure is justice because this is not a personal matter and the whole I, the whole thing is that it has to be stay in the realm of principles not as Hatib did personalized the conflict it's not a personal issue and because it's the realm of principles it could very well be that the enemies of today become the friends of tomorrow what, what how well, the how is answered in the ayah right after it. So, لا ينهاكم الله عن الذين لم يقاتلوكم في الدين ولم يخرجوكم من دياركم أن تبروهم وتقصتوا إليهم إن الله يحب المقصتين إنما ينهاكم الله عن الذين قاتلوكم في الدين وأخرجوكم من دياركم وظاهروا على إخراجكم أن تولوهم so Allah comes and says, Allah is not, the point is that Allah is not, um, yeah, that God is not forbidding you to deal with friendliness and kindness to those who have not fought, who do not fight you and who do not have not forced you out of your homes and to to be kind and and um yeah, kind and merciful towards them. And to is to be just towards them. So, what Allah makes the intention very clear here, that when Allah is talking about enmity, and the what Allah started the surah is al mawadda that that and that you do not have normal friendly relations Allah is talking about those who are hostile to you who do not respect your right to be and those who have ejected you from your homes so as 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 long as there is transgression and injustice that transgression and injustice must be addressed. That's again precisely why when you find all these Muslims who say, oh, you know, what the Emirat is doing with Israel and, oh, let's just make and what Bahrain has done and what now Sudan has done and what Morocco has done. We'd love to have, peace is a Quranic imperative, but not as long as Israel is still calling the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria and annexing Palestinian homes and refusing to address the historical injustice and refusing to give Palestinians the right to return. And then you say, 
oh, well, let's let bygones be bygones and let's all just be friends. Surat al-Muntakhina is as if it's seeing our, our trajectory and our future. By the way, Surat al-Muntakhina is also a surah that played a core role in the wars of liberation of Palestine during the Crusades. Because like today, there were Muslim leaders who just wanted to make, have business relations with the Crusader states and you know, make money from the Crusader states were, you know, were opening business up with Europe. So to have business relations with the Crusader states may, meant you can trade with Europe and you can make a lot of cash. And there were a lot of rulers that thought, well, you know, that is wonderful for my budget and for my treasury. And I can have bigger palaces, bigger, you know, uh, 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 ships and vessels and so on and so forth. Surat al-Muntahina begins the process of sort of refining these moral points you cannot build an ethical existence upon an injustice as long as these people are hostile to you then simply talking about friendly relations and friendly emotions is not acceptable okay so that Allah specifically forbids you from turning it with friendship towards those those who fight against you and have driven you out of your homelands and conspired to deny you your homelands. That because they continue to be transgressors, unjust towards you, that's what forecloses the possibility of normal relations or friendly relations. Um, in this context, there are a number of reports around these ayat, and that is when Surat al-Muntahina was revealed, um, well, uh, let me give you just the, the example. Asma bint Abi Bakr, her mother came to visit her in Medina 
and she had was carrying with her gifts to her daughter. And Asma, because her mother was not a believer, thought that she can't accept the gifts and she cannot welcome her mother. And she turned her mother away. Now, it's rather interesting that her mother, in one report at least, in, in one report, Asma told her mother, I, I'm not, I can't let you in until I ask the Prophet. In another report, she turns her away and then her mother tells her, well, can you please ask the Prophet? Which is very interesting because the, the you find this a consistent theme that even non-Muslims knew that they would always expect from the Prophet the most beautiful, goodly thing. So anyway, in either case, when the matter is ref- comes to the Prophet's attention, the Prophet ﷺ tells Asma, no, this is not what the surah is talking about. Accept the gifts and welcome your mother. When you look into this matter, Asma's mother was not an enemy, was not hostile to Muslims. She was not among the people conspiring to hurt Muslims. And in fact, although herself not a Muslim, she knew very well that the gifts that she was bringing to her daughter were something that will ultimately help and aid Muslims. There are the vagaries sometimes of the riwayat, of the reports. There is a report that um, um, uh, who, um, did I write it? Or, um, maybe I didn't write it. Uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah. There is a report that says I, I didn't write it, but I, that Aisha and Asma, their mother. It's a very interesting, weird report. It says Aisha and Asma told the Prophet, "Our mother came." wanting to see us and she was not a believer and and carrying gifts are we allowed to see her and 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 accept her gifts but the the weird thing about this hadith although it's in muslim is aisha and asma didn't have the same mother so i mean it's it's one of these um 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 aisha and um asma their mothers were different so although the report is in, in um, Muslim itself, but anyway. Uh, by just an example of a report that you can't accept just because of the historical incongruity. Um, there's another hadith, maybe... Um, um, 
uh, we'll come to it anyway. Okay, so so we have these examples that um, of people who did not convert to Islam, but had um, had familial relations with Muslims in Medina. Um, Qushiri says that the standard for who Muslims, Qushiri commenting on this verse, said the standard for who Muslims can have friendly relations with. He says the standard is husn al-khulq, who has good moral character. And when further he, he elaborates, it says, and he considers that those who are don't respect the right of Muslims to be Muslims, to be contrary to Husn al-Khulq. That, you know, someone who has good moral character will respect your religion. Um, Ibn Abbas, just for sake of completeness, I should mention this. Ibn Abbas says that these verses uh, were revealed because there were tribes like Ibn Khuza'a who, I mean, it's, it's part of completing the picture, that there were tribes like Ibn Khuza'a that after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, they could see the writing on, on, on the wall. They could see that Mecca's power, you know, Islam was catching on. It was it, so that tribes like Ibn Khuza'a approached the Prophet and said to him, okay, we don't want to fight with you and we don't want to fight against you. We would like to make an agreement with you that we would not help anyone against you, but we won't help you either. And the Prophet accepted these. And Ibn Abbas says, that these ayat are effectively saying, tribes like Ibn Khuza'a you can have normal friendly relations with, although not Muslim. But those who are still committed to hostility against Muslims are the ones that you can't have normal friendly relations with. I mean, the reason I'm spending all this time on this is because we are living in an age of confusion. When I see, you know, I see people who, I mean, as we saw, people who are a part of Zaytuna, and they look at the Islamophobes during the Muslim ban, and they say, oh, there's no problem with being friends with Trump and his... Islamophobic administration. I mean, how 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 do you get to that level of confusion when you see Isna going to bed 
with a well-known Islamophobic organization. When you see the, the Emirat and Saudi and the Egyptian government, the Egyptian government was, was, was constantly quoting Fox News. You know, outright Islamophobic. And their authority, their, their, their sort of frame of their proof that of, of what's right and wrong is Fox News. We, we live in, an, in a bizarre age where the most basic message of the Quran, the most basic, eludes us. So even something as simple as you cannot befriend those who hate Islam it, it needs to be proven which is mind-blowing. I mean, just mind-blowing. Okay. Okay, we're going to enter a new paragraph, so let's take a three-minute break. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Okay. So... Then we now with verse 10 where Surah Al-Mumtahina addresses the issue of Muslim or women who convert to Islam and come to Medina wanting to join Medina. Um, And we don't know, um, we don't know much about Mecca's position as to the women who sought refuge in Medina. Um, Except there are what what little evidence exists seems to indicate that from Mecca's perspective that the Treaty of Hudaybiyah precluded that or would not allow Muslims. But Muslims, the especially after the revelation of. Uh, of Surah Al-Hudaybiyah, uh, Surah al Muslims said, well, the treaty did not cover w female converts, and we, we cannot return women who come seeking refuge to us if they are converts to Islam. Interestingly, Part of what was part of what these the the women who would seek refuge would be asked, because in Surah Mutahna, as we said, Mutahna basically means the examined or the tested, and it's uh, it's not really an examination as much of an oath. The oath consists of an. Uh, or the examination consists of an oath. And the oath is that 
you come because you are a convert to Islam, because of the shahadat al-ashadu an la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, not because you are escaping from your husband or because you prefer residing in Medina over residing in Mecca. The fact that the reports say that it would be specified that you are, you know, you're taking an oath that you're not coming to Medina for financial reasons. You're not coming to Medina because of some type of family dispute. You're not coming to Medina because you are attracted to residing in Medina uh, or you prefer residing in Medina over Mecca that in fact you are motivated by by faith is further you know the 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 reason for people to specify this type of uh, uh, these type of type of um, articles is that it must have been that there in fact, as the report we talked about at the beginning by this woman, Sara, uh, would seem to indicate that there in Medina had become a point of attraction for people who were not Muslim, but were coming to Medina for reasons other than faith. If they were willing to take the oath that they were in fact sincere converts to Islam, that's the end of the matter. And then they had to be allowed to um, join Medina, and they would not be returned to Mecca. Obviously, if they would refuse to take the oath, then they would be, in fact, returned to Mecca. But a very interesting, there is a very interesting institution that was attached to this. Um, and as far as I can tell, I have not found a parallel to it anywhere. I mean, we have not seen something like this in, in any medieval practice that I could find. And that is... For these women who came to Medina, who were willing to take the oath, if they were married, they would be treated as if they've instituted a procedure of khula against their husbands. In other words, khula is where no-cause no divorce, where you return the dowry to the husband and you free yourself for no cause. And it is very interesting that, and the sources are discuss this, if the, the family of the refuge is a brother or a father, and they come and say, 
we want to be paid the money we spent on, let's say, you know, take, uh, uh, raising our daughter or taking care of our sister. That was not covered. But specifically, what was covered is returning the dowry paid to the husbands of these convert women in order, and it was, it's not something that Mecca demanded, but it's something that Muslims initiated. And when you find something like this, it makes me feel that, or it, it, that as you saw, I mean, it's commanded by the surah itself, that, that form of, because the surah itself says that as long as you return the dower, so they're, they're, then you may remarry these women, or these women may remarry with a new dowry. But you must return the dowry to the husbands they left behind. Which makes me believe that, that although women were not specifically addressed in the treaty, it is an how do I say it, an excess sense of Islamic justice that it must have been that Allah and the Prophet thought that it would have been reasonable for Quraysh to think that women are covered by the treaty and that because it is a, a term not specifically negotiated in which reasonable divergent interpretations are possible. It is basically Muslims treated this with an excess of justice in if let's say if the treaty would have specifically covered women and what would if and what would then have been you would imagine in order for muslims to say well we we've changed our mind but we we can't return these women the the sort of the, the most obvious point is that the husbands of these women would say well you know give us our dowry back if you're going to consider these women de facto divorced then according to your own procedure of khula you should return our dowries to us we mecca didn't and didn't we didn't even get there but it seems to me like an an excess point of justice it's well, since we didn't specifically negotiate this, and since it, the mistaken belief that women are covered, 
could have been a reasonable, honest mistake. We are going to treat this institution as if these women are being divorced from their husbands through the procedure of khula. Muslims could have simply said the, the marriage was dissolved and that's the end of it. And the woman would seek refuge and that matter. But you pause and you reflect again if you were in that place in that time where you could err on the part of on the side of non-liability and you could say well there is sufficient ground to say the marriage is just dissolved and that's the end of the matter and anyway we're dealing with kuffar and who cares but the fact that muslims didn't treat the matter with that type of uh, casualness they they the fact that they took the extra step to say well you know it, we can't just treat these marriages as simply dissolved and we will effectively say that there is a as if a procedure of khula so we return and it's not the woman who had the obligation to pay the khula but the Muslim community bore the obligation of paying the khula so it became part a, 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 upon the public treasury the Muslim public treasury to pay that khula It is only a position that would be taken by the most ethically conscientious. I mean, I would imagine if it was, it is, you know, completely different from, from the attitude of treating people just because they're kuffar as having no rights. Because effectively, you're saying, well, you know, we can't just consider your marriages divorced. And because we really don't know if you had thought of that term in the, in the terms of the treaty that we negotiated with you. And because it was not specifically addressed, we are going to err on the side of returning your dowries to you in order to buy these women their freedom. I have found no parallel to this in medieval examples of international dealings between one polity or another. And that is also why when Muslims then said, well, this should be reciprocal. If we have Muslim women that apostate and go back to Quraysh and leave their Muslim husbands, you, Mecca, should pay to treat this as a khula as well, and you should pay the dowry. Mecca balked. Mecca said, are you kidding? We're not going to pay dowries for people. 
the sources say, some sources say there were five women who apostated and went back to Mecca. Some sources say there were six. Other sources say there were seven. Um, the likelihood that they were, in fact, six. Um, according to my list, Umm al-Hakam, who is, uh, Umm al-Hakam was uh, Abu Sufyan's daughter, um, apostated and returned. Fatma bint Umayyah. Uh, Fatma bint Umayyah was married to Omar ibn al-Khattab, and she apostated and went back to uh, Mecca. Um, although some reports say that no, um, she converted, but then when Omar migrated, she refused to migrate, and then eventually apostated. And these probably reports are more correct. Um, there's a woman called Burua bint Aqba. Um, little was known about her other than she apostated and went back. Azza bin Abdul Aziz, um, who also, little was known about her. Uh, there's a, a, a woman, um, uh, the daughter of Abu Jahl had converted to Islam, migrated, and then apostated and went back. And a woman called Um Kalsum bint Jarwal or uh, Jarwal, um, who was also married to Omar ibn Khattab, and some reports also say that she refused to migrate. She converted but refused to migrate and eventually apostated. Other reports say that she did migrate but then apostated and went back. So, anyway, for these six women, Mecca. Refuse to the idea that this is khola and that they should um, uh, pay the dowry to their husbands. So, per the terms of Surat al Mumtahina, the public the dowry then was paid by the Muslim public treasury to their husbands. Um, which, again, you pause and you think of the extent to which there is this communal investment. It's, 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 you know, the idea that, that you find among the, you know, the, the sometimes I call them the neocon Muslims, um, neocon style Muslims who basically are, are imitating uh, the Christian neocon movement. Uh, the idea that th this is your own personal problem and, you know, the community it doesn't have responsibility or the, the Muslims and their community are, are not one and the same is, is a really alien idea. The example after example we find from the example set by the Prophet is the community was completely vested in the affairs of the individual. And the value of the individual is the value of the community and vice versa. Okay. Now, so this is verse 10 and 11. Let's see if I'm forgetting anything. Yeah. Um, There is a debate in Islamic jurisprudence 
as to whether this measure of re- dealing this uh, as a khula and returning the dari, whether that legislation has permanence beyond the specific events at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. So, um, early authorities, I mean, um, I remember Qutada is among them. Did I write the others? Mujahid and Ata' said that the law, the law was only pertinent to the circumstances of the Prophet ﷺ and the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So, meaning that beyond that, in Islamic law, the Islamic State would not be under an obligation if there are similar circumstances, a treaty, and women come seeking refuge and they left behind non-Muslim husbands, that then the state would be obligated to return the dowry because then it would be considered a state of khula. Other jurists disagreed and said, no, it does have permanent validity. And so, according to these jurists, then Islamic international law would obligate the state to treat women seeking women converting and seeking refuge in the when if a treaty exists um as a state of khola and then would be returning the dowry which if the if that would be the case then it it would be an oddity of islam pre-modern uh, islamic international law because there's no other i could not find an example of a similar type of rule in any pre-modern context. Um, you know, the idea that you... Anyway, um, rather interesting. But verses 10 and 11, it's, it's in the Quran itself that specifies that the dowry be... Uh, there is an, an issue, I, I don't know if I'm getting too technical, but notice for sake of completion and because I'm always told don't rush, uh, um, okay, where is it? Notice 11. So this is 11, right? And if any of your wives should go over to the deniers of truth, to the kuffar, this is meaning apostate, and you are thus afflicted in turn, then give unto those whose wives have gone away the equivalent of what they have spent, meaning the dowry, um, and remain conscious of God in, in whom you believe. The issue here is in the word aqabtum. Aqabtum could mean 
in this context could mean two possible things. One meaning is what uh, Muhammad Asad shows when he says, and you are thus afflicted in turn. Fa'aqabtum here would mean, would, would have the same meaning as ta'aqub, meaning that in the same way that there are women that leave their husbands and come to you as Muslims, now in turn, you have women that leave you and go to them as kuffar. And here, aqabtum would mean just it's now your turn to be afflicted. It's your turn to suffer that uh, loss. The other meaning is aqabtum means and you punish, which is not the meaning that Muhammad Asad shows. But if if it's so, then it would then you would read the verse as so. If your wives leave you, go into the kuffar, and you punish. What does and you punish mean? And most comment or what nearly all commentators who took that meaning said it means so and then there is a battle and you earn spoils of war of booty then give the dowry to those who wives have left them from the spoils of war so According to the other school, second school, that the, the husbands who had wives leave them and apostate, they are to be paid when there are spoils of war or from the spoils of war. So it specifies there's where the payment, meaning that the dowry or that is returned to them, of course, if they didn't pay much of a dowry, like if they paid the dowry that just the Quran, for instance, then it's nothing. But we're talking about people like who had, you know, serious dowry amounts, uh, which was not unusual at the time. Um, then it would come from spoils of war. I think the Muhammad Assad perspective is correct, but the reason I think it's correct is because of the qira'at. One of the qira'as for this word is not fa'aqabtum, but fa'aqabtum. And I think that that's the correct qira'ah. I don't believe that fa'aqabtum is the correct qira'ah. I believe that the correct qira'ah is fa'aq. I know that you are supposed to consider the qira'at all equally valid. But I have a hard time with this one. I think fa'aqabtum, which means, and in turn, you, in the same way that they've lost women who left their religion, you lose women who leave your religion. The same rule applies across the board. Um, I don't know if this is too detailed. Um, but anyway.
Is that too detailed? Um, all right. So now there is a further this area twelve, okay. Prophet, when believing women come unto you to pledge the allegiance, so they're now they're going to take the shahada and this pledge, right? They're going to to swear that they are coming because they are believers, not because uh, for any other reason. Then the pledge you take from them. أَنْ لَا يُشْرِكْنَا وَلَا يَسْرِقْنَا وَلَا يَزْنِينَا وَلَا يَقْتُلْنَا أَوْلَادَهُمْ So the pledge that they're going to take is going to be specific. That they will not ascribe a divinity in any way to aught but God. They will not steal. They will not commit adultery. They will not kill their children. And they would not indulge in slander falsely devising it out of nothingness so they're not going to go around they're not going to uh, 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 yeah you know where you are throw accusations you accuse this person of having an affair with this person or doing this or that uh, including something that uh, oddly enough was was done in Meccan society, where you would get a slave, you would get you would the woman would get the slave pregnant, and a husband because husbands at the time would uh, would uh, marry multiple wives, and would travel for years at a time. We could be gone for a year, and then when the husband returns home. The, the woman would tell the husband this is your son and the son or this is your, your child although the child was born actually by the slave so the, the woman would buy a slave have the slave get pregnant give birth and then sell the slave and then present the child to her husband the, the reason they did that there were many different reasons one is that some women didn't want to ruin their figure so they wanted to say their husbands, look, we we have we, you know, we're, we're childbearing mothers, but not ruin their figures. I actually there, there's some poetry about this. There there's some women who couldn't bear children, and they did this. There are some women who wanted to make they did it because they knew that their husband wanted a boy, and so they would keep doing this, and unfortunately they would they would keep, uh, you know selling the the slave and her daughter until they when they get a slave that give birth to a boy so uh, many commentators say that this issue of slander uh, the prophet specifically says that you no longer can engage in this type of behavior this type of dishonesty is not allowed okay so they will not kill their children and they will not Indulgent slander, falsely devising, you know, 
dishonest schemes, and they are to obey you in as the prophet of God in, in any that and they are to let's see how he translated this and they are to and would not disobey you in anything that you declare to be right then accept their pledge of allegiance um literally is they will not disobey you in anything that's good and there's a woman actually that asks asks the prophet well wait a minute what does that mean I mean, we wouldn't, so what, What can you give us any detail about this? And the Prophet ﷺ responds, so for instance, you are not allowed to be na'ihat. Na'ihat was, a, 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 in, unfortunately, it still exists as a practice in, in Muslim cultures, in some, I mean, in, especially in non-Arabic settings, where you have, a funeral and you pay respect to the funeral by wailing and uh, heaping dust on your head or ripping your clothes um, some did it out of you know be paying respect to a mujamala um, uh, like mujamala uh, like uh, to be um, what uh, like a form of etiquette flattery yeah um others would be paid to do it and it's both are were forbidden interestingly one of the women who went to take a bay'ah uh, such a bay'ah and when the 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 prophet told her that you may not engage in this so she tells him oh i have a friend who flattered me by wailing in the funeral of my loved one and I have to reciprocate. So I'm not going to take the bay'ah right now. I'm, I'm going to go away. And after I flatter her back, um, I'll come and take the bay'ah. And the Prophet smiles and doesn't say anything. Which is, I mean, when you want to understand his personality, that's, that's classic him. Um, very gentle soul. Um, you know, he's, he's not going to sit there and give lectures and speeches and... Now, one of the women tells the Prophet when he tells her, and in some reports it's actually Hind, uh, Abu Sufyan's wife, when he tells her that you have to, you know, the pledge includes that you will not associate partners with God, that you will not, you know, kill your child, you will not... For, uh, 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 fornicate or commit adultery uh, so on she tells him you didn't take this oath from men the oath he took from men was the shahada and that they would commit to performing jihad when call, if called upon to do jihad but I was very curious why the specificity in this oath why the detail of you should not associate partners with God, you should not steal, you should not 
kill your children. You should not commit adultery. And after a long, strenuous search, I found reports that answered this question by saying that initially when they were told take an oath that you take the shahada and that you are not coming for personal reasons not related to islam it turned out that if you of the woman that took such a shahada didn't actually know anything about islam didn't know what even there is no god but god meant they didn't know they didn't know that you're not allowed to bury your daughters alive they didn't know that extramarital affairs were not allowed they didn't know that islam they didn't know they were clean slate about islam they came from the desert which again is further proof that Islam had become, or Medina had become, an independently attractive place because Muslims have distinguished themselves with, by their ethics, by their morality, by the, by the respect that they treated human beings with. So even people who were not Muslim and didn't want to become Muslim wanted to go to Medina because it, they heard the rumors, this is where you can be received charity, be treated well, which is a much needed paradigm change in the way Muslims understand their religion. The reason Medi the reason Mecca folded without resistance people is because in those three years the young people in Mecca were rushing to join Islam anyway. And the elders in Mecca knew that there was no point in it. But it wasn't it it wasn't suddenly people woke up and said, Whoa, well, you know, yeah, uh, idols don't make sense, and no God but God makes a lot of sense. It was the demonstrated ethical, humane practice that they experienced, and the reputation that emerged from Medina, so that eventually the name of Medina became Al Medina Al Munawwara, the 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 city of light. When you further look into Islamic history, some of the most biting critique of the Umayyads is that they took away from the moral luster of Medina, which again tells you that, and part of uh, Part of what I mean, this is again. I found this 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 uh, riwayah that when Abu Bakr takes the decision to enter the wars of apostasy, um, one of the companions tells them, "Well, if we 
put upon the budget what the wars of apostasy will require, how is Medina, how is Medina going to continue being as charitable as it was at the time of the Prophet? To me, I stop at that and say, wow, further evidence of the phenomena, historical phenomena that everything in Surah Al-Muntahina points out to. So the reason that you get these specifications is that there were plenty of women coming without a clue as to Islam. And you wanted to make sure, and that is why Hind, when when the Prophet ﷺ presents her with these same questions, she's mocking them. I mean, she's polite in, in a way. I mean, I could we could review Hind's report when Hind is Abu, Abu Sufyan's wife. And if you remember, Hind is the woman that reportedly tore out had Hamza's liver and at least bit it, you know, didn't eat it, but although she was known as Hind Akilat al-Kubud, but, but she, she didn't eat it, she, she bit it and then spat it out. But when she converts, she sneaks up. She wears a veil because she doesn't want to be recognized. She she knows that she's done a horrible thing. Uh, anyway, but the Prophet ﷺ, just from her responses, knew who she is. And um, But her responses to these questions, uh, you know, she basically, you know, don't commit adultery. And she says, well, you know, would a respectable woman commit adultery? Well, don't steal. Well, I won't steal except, you know, my husband is, is stingy. And, you know, he doesn't give me enough, so I steal from him. And uh, um, you know, don't, you, you, um, don't um, uh, slander. Uh, and I forgot exactly what she, but again, she gives another one of these responses. And even the response when she's told uh, and obey God and his prophet and said, well, you know, we don't, we didn't enter this religion to disobey you. For someone like Hind, who knew what Islam was about, yeah, these sort of smart alecky responses make sense because she has a clue. But when you look at other women who are presented with this, it's like an education to them. Oh, okay, so this is the religion that I'm converting to? So, yeah. All right. Then... The closing of Surah Al-Mumtahina. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, la tatawallaw qawman ghadiballahu alayhim qad ya'isu min al-akhira kama ya'isu al-kuffaru min ashab al-kubur. Then we get to the closing and believers la tatawallaw do not Take as friends or as allies those who 
Allah have earned Allah's wrath. And Surah Al-Mumtahna, everything that it tells us about who are those people who have earned Allah's wrath. They who would be friends of are indeed bereft of all hope of a life to come, just as those deniers of truth are bereft of all hope of ever again seeing those who are now in their graves. The reason I, it makes sense that this Surah Al-Mumtahna closes by this because it goes back to the theme it started out with. And it's saying, reminding that if you, if you, those people that have, that bear hostility against Islam and that have committed themselves to be unjust towards Muslims earns God's wrath. And it makes sense that Allah is saying, and if you ally yourselves to them, or if you pretend that this problem doesn't exist, you in turn are like them. But the reason I posit this is because we get these reports, number of reports, that some reports that say, well, there were fuqara and muslimin, that there were indigent Muslims who would go to Jews in Medina and give, sell, or communicate um, information about Muslims to these Jewish communities in return for payment. Other reports said that individuals like Abdullah ibn Amr and Zayd ibn al-Harth had developed close relationships with Jewish individuals in Medina who were known for their hatred and enmity towards Islam. The reason I posit these reports, because they're, they're multiple, come in, in many different, through many different ways and many reports, Remember that according to the reports that I questioned earlier, that the Jewish tribes in Medina are supposed to have been expelled by this time. So who are those Jews in Medina? And this is not an isolated type of report. We continue to get reports throughout after the supposed complete expulsion of Jews from Medina of the continuing existence of Jewish communities in Medina, which goes back to the point I raised much earlier, that I have very serious doubts about the authenticity of these reports about the complete expulsion of Jewish tribes from Medina. Yes, there were 
large, I mean, every incident of, of betrayal or treachery must have been addressed by some form of expulsion. But the evidence is that there continued to exist in Medina Jewish communities for even long after the death of the Prophet um, and this goes back again to the, the change of transmission of the narratives about the complete expulsion of Jews which as I you know go back to what I said about that that it, it's there are just a lot of red flags about who transmitted these traditions and um and the political motivations be behind them. Um, but, okay, but aside from this, you know, point about Jewish tribes and so on, which, you know, the historical issue, the closing of Surat al-Mubtahina makes you actually, it makes you pause There is, a, a, just to, for sake of completeness, there is a debate in the tafsir tradition as to whether this ayah is saying that who is it when it says those who despair, is it saying that those who got, have earned God's wrath once they become Ashab al-Kubur, once they become people in their grave sites, once they've entered their grave sites, they will realize that there is no hope because once they enter their grave sites, they realize that they didn't believe in God, they earned God's wrath, and now they're in trouble. Or is it saying as Muhammad Asa translated it, that those that those who don't believe fundamentally despair of seeing loved ones because they don't believe in an afterlife. And this seems to be the Muhammad Asad's choice in understanding this verse. Uh, deniers of truth are bereft of all hope of ever again seeing those who are now in their graves. I think I I tend to agree closer to Muhammad as a translation, but maybe in a in a in a slightly different way. I think that the ending of Surah Al-Mumtahana is a more of an existential point. If you are asking yourself, you, you, who, why would you ally yourself with certain people? Why would you develop relations of um, closeness to a certain people? Well, Surat, up to this point, Surat al-Mumtahina tells us clearly 
about those who are hostile. And God says, I am not telling you don't be friendly to those who are fair towards you. And I am telling you, you cannot be close to those who are hostile to your religion and hostile to you. But then after going through the whole issue of who you are accepting a pledge for, from who's joining your community, we come to a subtle, tender, if you will, existential point. There are those who who you develop um, a close relations with, warm feelings with, who you end up allying yourself with, If there are people who see the grave as the end, it's the end of all. There is no hope beyond the grave because the grave is the end of the story. But there are those who see the grave as the beginning of a new chapter. And you cannot... go around the reality that this basic existential philosophical issue is the grave the end or not the end colors your very attitude towards life and how you deal with life. Your, your attitudes, your moods, your decisions, your choices. And Allah comes at the very end, and it's as if saying, ponder your relations. And whether these are relations with people who see life as a transition but not the end, or who see life as basically it. Because it will, it, and, and, because it, you don't need to be hostile to Muslims to earn God's wrath. غضب الله عليهم You could be, you could earn God's wrath simply by not believing in God. Even you're not hostile to Muslims. So, the, the crux here is to get us to reflect on those who despair of see no future for those who are dead and buried. In other words, they see death as the end of everything. And it is like saying to us, of course, your, your attitudes, your relations to life will be affected by the philosophical, existential attitude of those that you, are, that you identify with and 
have a close, intimate relations with. Um, I just want to make sure I didn't forget anything. So, can we summarize Surat Al-Muntahina in and it is an intervention at a at a time and, and this is an intervention at a time when things are turning going the way uh, that, that muslims want them to go and even at the point in which things are looking up, because by now Muslims are aware that actually Treaty of Hudaybiyah was a really good idea. And by now, as we said, the, Mecca has broken the treaty. And as we know, know that in fact Muslims are getting ready to take military action against Mecca because the treaty had it was violated. But yet Muslims are still obligated to follow ethical rules even at a point where hubris and a sense of power and strength could make you feel, well, we're just dealing with the kuffar, who cares? The Quran comes in discerning and says, no, God does not, it, it, you never have an excuse to ignore their rights. And you never have an excuse that to be unjust or unfair. And the terms and obligations of the treaty remain binding until the very end. Muslims till Mecca surrendered continued to follow, and even when Mecca was defeated, which is really an interesting point, that when Mecca surrendered, Muslims went and the people who had wives that converted went and joined Mecca who had not yet received the dowry, the khula. And even Mecca had surrendered. Muslims went and said, here's your money. In every other scenario that you would imagine in medieval context, Muslims would have said, oh, come on, 
Mecca has been defeated. Now the treaty is dissolved. Let's just forget about this money thing. Why should we pay you? But what blew me away is that Muslims still went and even after Mecca surrendered, came and said, well, you know, your wife left you, joined us. Uh, we never paid you the, the khula amount. Here it is. It's a, it's a, it's a completely different ethical universe than what you would expect in a medieval context. Okay, that's it. Alhamdulillah. We're done with Surah Al-Muntahma. What time is it? Oh, uh, we won't have time for a Q&A. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. This was really incredible, and it really just demonstrates how, like, now as we've um, progressed and, like, you know, we go back to sort of a lot of the basic lessons that we were taught along the way, even when we were in Meccan surahs. And I remember, like, you know, Surah Abbasa is like, you know, you can't just be good. You have to be beautifully good. Um, you know, what does that look like? Um, and yeah. even other lessons that we talked about, like, you know, who who do you associate yourself with? Who's in your intimate circle? Um, you know, because these are the people that affect you the most. And it's just so fascinating because, um, like, the continuation of the last two surahs plus this one, you know, the impact of the Treaty of um, Hudaybiyah and the power of, um, you know, interacting with Muslims in peace and in ethics and the power of ethics and elevated ethics. So, you know, we see through this example that, um, you know, people are saying, oh, Islam spread by the sword. Well, no, actually Islam and even the Medinan reputation spread by ethical conduct and the power of that and what a lesson that is for us today, especially when you're talking about, you know, these very clear verses that say don't associate with people who, um, you know, fight you, take your homes away, you know, hate Islam. And it's like, as you said, you, we see all the Muslim leaders across these Muslim countries, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the you know, Egyptians, whatever, all these people who are just in bed with Israel, regardless of what happens in Palestine. And it's as if what they do, they not know these verses of the Quran, did they not you know, teach the Quran at Zaytuna to let people know this is not okay. You know, it, it's just like, wh wh why is this knowledge so absent in, in our world? And yet we have very clear examples every single day in the news of all the, all the evil that's happening because of those relationships. Um, but anyway, so it just, um, you know, it just such a lesson in, in like, always living by principle and elevated ethics and the power of spreading, like, that example um, through peaceful means, through, you know, um, personality, how you act, how you treat others, recognizing rights. It's all stuff that, ever, that, that we all understand and know to be beautiful and good and, and what attracts people. You know, it's, it all comes back to light. And, you know, the, um, so, and, you know, and, and again, I just think back to, okay, this article that I pointed out at the beginning of, you know, in my introduction with Karen Armstrong, you know, it's like, okay, what the question is, are there any 
canonical texts that are misrepresented and it's like oh yeah the Quran is supposed to be a, a chant it's it's a it's poetry it's something that can only be understood when it's recited and not read well you know just in this one surah alone it's like very clear directives about how you should conduct yourself and you know how um, even when you are as Muslims successful and on the rise you know God is telling you even then you have to be at the height of ethics and um, it, it's just such a beautiful powerful timeless lesson and alhamdulillah thank you for allowing us this insight into this really important chapter and just the Quran at, at you know at large because um, it's so different than everything else we're learning as I always say so alhamdulillah thank you um, I think for the Q&A then since we um, I guess we'll see. Maybe we can do another combined Q&A like we've been doing so people have a chance to reflect and think about their questions before they send them in. So we'll see how it goes. Let's <laughs> um, anyway, see, maybe. We'll see what ne the next surah is next week, inshallah. Well, if, if have people people have questions about Surah Al-Mutahna, if you're online, send them in. Yeah, just start and sending them and maybe poll then people see if they have questions then we can decide whether the next halakha is q a or okay or a new surah right good plan thank you so much everyone for joining us and have a wonderful week and inshallah we'll see you next saturday inshallah, inshallah. okay assalamu alaikum assalamu alaikum <laughs>